Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3. Thank you, baby. Um, Nehemiah chapter 3. As we come to this passage, the a lot, of, a lot of pastors use this passage one way or another. They use it to either talk about something different, as in they jump to a New Testament passage immediately and And they don't bother dealing with this one. They just go, look, they're building the wall. And then they go, how do we build the wall? And rightly so, they talk about the immediate application, which is beautiful and enjoyable and delightful. Don't hear me scolding them. I'm not scolding them for it. But that's what they do. Or or they skip this passage altogether. They read through it and then get right to chapter 4. Because chapter 4 is where the action starts. Chapter 4 is where the fight starts. But in chapter 3... We are told what they rebuild, which is uh, feels a lot like reading a list of begats in the Bible. So and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat, and he was a thousand years old. And so and so begat, and so and so begat, and so and so begat, and they had so many kids. And so and so begat, and so it feels a lot like that. And I just wanted to preface what we're about to read by saying that, so that you would understand that we aren't doing either of those. We're going to actually dig into this passage and look at chapter 3. And as we read, it may, uh, your mind may drift a little. And I want you to focus and pay close attention to what's read. So I'm warning you about that, about what we're about to read, just so that you'll you'll zero in on it. And so let's look together, Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. And then we'll dive right in to the text. Let's read. Then, and also, I'm going to mess up a lot of names. Just, you know, be prepared. Then, Eliashab, Eliashib, Eliashib, the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built a sheep, the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set the doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, <laughs> and next to the next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid the beams and set the, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, Meshulam. The son of Berechiah, the son of Meshzebal, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites, repaired. And their, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord, their Lord. <coughs> and Jod- and Jodiah, or Jodah, the son of Pesah, and Meshalom, the son of Besodiah repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors and bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Azuel and Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired and restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. Next to them, Jedidiah, the son of Haram. Moth repaired opposite his house next to him. Hatusa, Hatush, sorry, the son of Hashabaniah repaired. Malkajah, the son of Harim. And Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab repaired another section. And the tower of ovens next to them, next to him, Shalom, uh, son of Halahesh, ruler of half district, half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters, Hanan, and the inhabitants of 
Zanoah repaired the valley gate and they rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malachijah and Rechab, ruler of the district of Bethel Hakarim, repaired the dung gate and rebuilt it and set its doors and its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate and he built it and covered it and set the doors, its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half of the district of Beth-zur, repaired a, to a point opposite of the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Rahum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Caliah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai and the son of Hinadad, ruler of the half-district of Caliah. Next to him, Ezer, or Ezer and the son of Joshua, uh, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent from the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elishab to the end of the house of Elishab. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashib repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Ben-Nui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress. And to the corner, Palal, the, the son of Uzziah, repaired the buttress of the tower projecting from the upper house of the king to the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Awful, repaired to the point of the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. And after Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the son of the, the sixth son of Zalaf repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Mal- Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the mustard gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. Thank you for bearing with my mispronunciation of names. So, we want to talk about Nehemiah chapter 3. And just as we dive into this, I want, I want to remind you of a couple things. One, there's a great prophetic backdrop going on here. Nehemiah is written in this passage is happening amidst the prophetic backdrop where we can remember in Jeremiah chapter 19, Jeremiah stood at the very dung gate where they were, uh, where they're repairing in this chapter. So he stood there at that dung gate and he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem. He prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem at the dung gate, stood there at that gate and said, this place 
is going to be in ruins. And as Nehemiah walked around the Jerusalem in the last chapter taking inventory, he would have remembered this is the very place where Jeremiah said this was going to happen. But Jeremiah didn't stop his prophecy there. Ezra and Nehemiah, the book begins with Jeremiah's prophecy. With Jeremiah saying, I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to rebuild all of this. And it's going to come back into existence. Jeremiah prophesied both the destruction and the rebuilding of this. So as they're rebuilding, there's this prophetic background going on where they are laboring side by side as a community of faith to rebuild walls. Walls that we know from archaeology and history were about eight feet thick. They were about eight feet thick, these walls. And they were massive. And they're rebuilt with stone and beams. Beams that would hold them in place. Beams that would go along the tops. Beams that would provide walking and and stone. They're massive buildings. This is massive project. This is huge. And they're rebuilding these things together as a community in the midst of a prophetic reality. Not only does Jeremiah emphasize that there will be this rebuilding, he emphasizes the returning of the king. The returning of David's son. The king who would come back. So imagine, as you're rebuilding this wall, you're thinking, when we get this built, the king returns. And we're a nation again. And we're a people again. And we have a God who rules again. And we're not in exile anymore. And everything is set right. And everything is made whole. And and our sin that has weighed us down is forgiven. And we are able to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth because His presence is with us. We have a king coming. And they looked, and they hoped, and they were building this wall with that prophetic backdrop. And as they build, they build, and they build, and they build, and that's drummed up in their brain. And they're thinking, we have a king who's coming to save us. So, they've got this prophetic backdrop. And it's also on the backdrop of this very prophecy, chapter 2. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, when it says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. This is in the context of the same prophecy that says I will appoint a, uh, that the son of David will rule on the throne forever. That he says there will be an eternal king. It's in the same context, same few verses, but verse 10. We often jump right past verse 10 to get to the one who's going to rule on the throne forever. If you look at verse 10 in 2 Samuel, did I put it up there for you? Yeah, I did. If you look at verse 10 in 2 Samuel, it says this, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. This prophecy would be going in their heads as they are building the wall, building the wall saying, our king is going to come. These walls are going to protect us. And he's going to come. We will no longer be oppressed and beaten and broken as a people. So they're building with this prophetic backdrop in mind. Nehemiah builds with this in mind as much as the king. He looked to Jerusalem as a picture of a greater kingdom to come. Nehemiah was looking at Jerusalem as a greater, as a picture of what is a greater kingdom to come. And we know this from Hebrews chapter 11 when it says that Abraham went to a city but was aiming for a city that would be greater. He was looking to a greater city to come, a future city. And that the people of God were laboring for a physical city, but they were doing so as an image of the greater city that is to come, that is only found and only secured in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that your citizenship is only given to you in that context. I know Jesus Christ 
Savior and Lord, and therefore I'm a citizen of that kingdom to come. And indeed, today, we look forward to the day when He will split the sky and His kingdom will be made known to everyone and will rule for eternity as King and Lord over the kingdom, the city of God, with the people of God, among whom we are grafted in. We are grafted into that kingdom adopted as children and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And that is what we look forward to. And that's what Nehemiah had in mind as he's building with this prophetic wall, this prophetic background. Remember in 2 Samuel 7.13, which you ought to have rolling around in the back of your mind, it's talking about the king to come. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus Christ is that king who comes. And we can rejoice. Nehemiah looked forward to it, but didn't get to see it. Because it wasn't perfected until we come. That's the language of the Bible. It wasn't perfected until he comes to us with the gospel. And that's why the greatest next book to read after Nehemiah, Matthew. When the king enters Right there, the King, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, in a genealogy. Right there, it's the first thing in the New Testament, and it is fitting. Right after Nehemiah and Ezra have rebuilt the walls, they've rebuilt the temple, they've reestablished the worship of God, and at the end of the book, you're going, but this is incomplete. And then Matthew goes, we knew it was incomplete, here he is, and the completion comes in in Jesus Christ and we have life and salvation. That's what he looked forward to. Second thing, he looked for a historic reality. He was building this. Nehemiah and the people of Israel are building this amidst a historic reality. You have to imagine, as they're building these places, these are profound places they're rebuilding. As they rebuild the, the steps of David that David built for them to enter into the, the kingdom. As they rebuild the sheep gate. Did you notice it begins and ends in the sheep gate? By the way, that's not an accident. It begins and ends where the sacrifice enters the temple. That's where you brought sacrifices to the temple. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. That's where they start the, the record. Because God has always been about the gospel for you and for me. He's always been about how do you get access to Him through the blood of the Lamb, who we know as Jesus Christ, who we know gives us access to Him. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So they build with this prophetic backdrop. They build with this historic reality. As they built the wall, they must have felt this weighty, deep truth. This would be recognized as a monumental occasion. You're putting up a wall, putting in bolts and mortar, and with each moment that you're putting in, there's this feeling that I'm doing something profound here. I'm building a kingdom that is greater than myself, greater than my lifetime. It's an eternal, eternal, powerful moment where they are worshiping the little living God by building a wall and by building gates that open and close. By building gates that protect but also invite by building gates that let people in, by building gates that protect from what's outside. They are struck by this reality. The sheep gate would be the place where Jesus heals the man in John 5, where he comes in and he's right outside that gate is this big pool where people would sit and wait for the pool waters to be stirred up and they'd try to get in as quick as possible because somebody had spread a myth that if you got in the pool when the waters were stirred up, you could be healed. And so they would try to roll in. And remember, Jesus comes to the guy that's on the side that's been there for a long time. And I imagine him to be about 10 feet away from the pool. And Jesus says, hey, uh, do you want to be healed? And he goes, what are you talking about? Do I want to be healed? He gets mad. And he tells him, of course I want to be healed. But I have no one to help me to get into the water. And Jesus says, all right, take up your bed and walk. And then he disappears. And you know he disappears because the guy doesn't, doesn't talk, like doesn't see him, doesn't go with him. 
But he picks up his bed and walks, and Pharisees come. You know the story. Pharisees come, and they say, you got to put down your mat. It's Sabbath day. And he goes, look, the guy that told me to walk, put this, told me to pick up my bed and walk, I'm never putting this thing down again. Right? That's my John Elkins remix. That's kind of what he's getting into there. But we see that that's going to happen at the Sheep Gate. We see the King's Pool, which is the pool near Siloam. It's, it's near the pool of Siloam. It may have been the same pool. We don't really know historically, but we know that it was at least close to it. And the pool of Siloam is basically what replaced the king's pool. And Jesus in John chapter 9 tells the blind man, go to that pool and wipe off your face. Wash off your face. And then he comes back seeing. Remember Zechariah chapter 14 verse 10 Zechariah, who would have prophesied during the time of most of these people, who was there in the restoration of the temple, who's around, he would have been prophesying there. And Zechariah, in 14.10, talks about the, the Tower of Hanael, which would stand forever. When everything else is leveled, this tower is going to stand. So he, they are building this tower going... This is going to be the victory of the Messiah. There's this historic power here. This would have pointed them to a place in history in which God restores His kingdom. Now, I tell you that to tell you this. When you are doing righteousness as a Christian on this earth, and you are engaging the body of Christ, and dealing with each other, and you are building up the body of Christ, you have the same backdrop. You have the same backdrop. Every nail you put into place. Every encouraging word you give to a Christian. Every time you lift up a brother or a sister. Every time you build the church. Every time you share the gospel. You are doing the same thing. You are laboring to build the kingdom of God on the earth. And you will see beautiful things from it. Just like they did here. This is down to the city of David where the steps would be built to get into the city. David built steps to get into the city, to get into the city, not to keep, you don't build steps to keep people out of a city. You build steps to keep, to get people into a city. And at the Southern gate, we have that map. I'm sorry. I didn't print a map for you this week. I printed a bunch of other stuff for you instead, but we have a map. And at the bottom of the city, at the bottom, there was the, the stairs. That's because it led into a big hill and a valley, and it was hard to get into the city. So David built steps. Such a simple thing with such profound implication. God has always wanted people to be able to get into his city. And he wants them to come in the right way. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the atonement of the Lamb. He wanted them to get into the city. The gospel has always been the case. And if you notice there, there's a reference, what we read earlier, to the garden of the king, the king's garden. I just, we don't have time to dwell on that this morning, but that's a subtle reference to to the garden of Eden. That's a subtle, like just showing you, hey, this is how you get into paradise. Through the steps of David, through the king's steps into the king's garden, this is Jesus is the access to the king's garden. There's a whole lot to say there. Ah, I'm going to stop right there. So this, this, he's got these things, a monumental, it's a profound place. There's monumental moments going on here. There's a historic reality and there's an eternal vision. As we said, Israel serves to point us to an eternal kingdom. Israel serves as a pointing of us to an eternal kingdom. When we read this, we ought to be reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, where Abraham looks forward to an eternal city. In chapter, same chapter 11, verse 22, Joseph sought to be buried in Jerusalem or in Israel because it was a greater kingdom. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 through 40, God brings to perfection that which is incomplete in Jesus, in the kingdom of God. So we have these things. They look forward to these things which the prophets did not fully comprehend. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, the prophets did not fully comprehend the vision that was there for them. So, 
We have those three things. We have a prophetic backdrop, we have a historic reality, and we have an eternal vision. Next, let's talk about building the city of God. The building of the city of God. If, as we read, you will notice, as we read, this was a communal and cooperative work. It's a communal and cooperative work, and it's a complete work. Those are our two points for the building of the city of God. This is a communal and cooperative work, and it's a complete work. It involves everybody, and it is finishing. It's all the way around, from Sheepgate one side to Sheepgate the other side. It finishes the whole thing. So let's talk about the communal and cooperative work. First, it begins with the high priest and the priest at the Sheep Gate. And it ends at the Sheep Gate. We mentioned this already, that it begins and ends at the Sheep Gate for a reason. The high priest is the one who starts this. Now, uh, if you were a group of pastors, we would dwell on this a whole lot. But since I'm kind of yelling at myself, <coughs> I'm going to do this quickly. Pastors are not priests. They are not priests. They do not uh, offer salvific opportunity. They do not go before you on behalf of God. That is Jesus who does that. Jesus is your great high priest. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the priest. You don't need a priest to go to God for you. You have a fellow pastor, a brother, a pastor who is among your numbers, who is also a sheep. I am not a priest. You say that from the outset. I'm not a priest. And any denomination or Christian group that would herald a priest or a hierarchy over your head is doing something extra biblical. I am a member of the body of Christ who has been tasked with specific things. And that's my job. Now, that being said, I want you to note what these leaders do here. Because these are priests of Israel. And while there is, while I'm not a priest, there is an analogy here of what good leaders do. These leaders roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty doing the work. And they're the ones that start. A good leader is one who serves, not one who just rules, but one who labors to serve the body. And that's what happens here at the very beginning. The ones who start the work here in verse 1, Elishab, Elishib, however you say his name, and his priest and his high priest rose up. His priest, the high priest, and his fellow priest rose up to build the gate. They consecrate it. They walk around. they they pray for everything. They cover things. And they build. And their names show up a couple times, don't they? Their names show up a couple times because a servant leader is what is required in the kingdom of God. So, I have a, a wonderful old phrase that my father-in-law likes to tell me, which is, if you want to be an elder, eld. If you want to be a deacon, deke. Stop waiting for people to give you titles. You want to be a servant leader in the church? Start serving. Start serving. Get your hands dirty. Start doing the work. Now, again, we're going to move past this. I have so much more I would love to yell at pastors about, but that's... I'm just yelling at myself, and you guys would be watching. So, <laughs> he begins with the high priest and the sheep gate. The spiritual leaders are the are a part of the body who labor in the body. Pastors, leaders, elders, deacons, people who have some kind of position, they should be laboring in service to those who they love. Note what was absent from all of that description I just gave. What was absent was any sense of hierarchy. That's not how you lead. You don't lead by claiming an authority. You lead by washing people's feet. By dying for them. By outserving them. By Romans 16 them. Outdo one another in showing honor. By loving each other. By outloving everyone. That's how you serve. That's how you lead. They are part of they're put into the body in order to equip the saints, as we know from Ephesians 4, in order to equip the saints. For the work of the ministry. That's what they are for. 
Now, note, the priest began. Uh, second, the people come from everywhere. Did you notice that as we read through? You had the people of Jericho in verse 2, that ancient city where they marched around and the walls fell. These are people from that area. They come to build. The Tekoites who come in verse 5 and they show up again later. They, show, they build two different parts. The Tekoites who come without their leaders, by the way. The nobles who didn't want to be a part. In verse 5, they say their nobles did not want to come, did not want to help the leaders, did not want to help the Lord, the building of the Lord. So they uh, come from there. Now remember the Tekoites. You remember the stories of the Tekoites. You have Amos, who's from Tekoa. He's a, sh- he's a shepherd from Tekoa. Some, some actually, some scholars think that he was probably a fruit harvester who like picked fruit and then did shepherding kind of on the side to make ends meet. But he's a shepherd from Tekoa. He's one of the greatest and strongest prophetic voices of the Old Testament. And he is a shepherd who picked fruit in the off season. That's... That's Amos. And he comes, and so you remember him, and you remember uh, Joab when David was uh, angry with Absalom and wouldn't forgive him, and Joab tricks David into forgiving him by having a woman of Tekoa uh, deceive David, and David uh, is caught in the same kind of play as he's caught with Nathan, who tells him the story of the sheep that gets stolen, and David gets all enraged, and Nathan's like, you're the man, and then David says, oh, I need to repent, and there's this weird exchange and, and David repents and he, he calls Absalom back after having kind of driven him away. In verse 7, we saw the Gibeonites. Did you see that? Next to them prepared Melatai the Gibeonite uh, and Jadon the Maranathite, Mer- Meronian, that guy, and the men of Gibeah and uh, Mizpah the seat of the governor of the province. So they they are building Gibeon, the Gibeonites, where the people uh, in Joshua chapter 9 and 10, if you guys have never read this story, this is a really incredible story, in Joshua chapter 9 and 10, when the Gibeonites see Israel, and they know that Israel is making peace with people who live far away, but if you live close, you're in trouble. So they lie, and they come in, and they go, um, we live far away, and they like dress themselves in shoddy clothes, and pretend that they didn't have enough food for the journey and they kind of come in stumbling like they're starving and they go please let us make peace with you and the israelites go yeah man you clearly live far away so sure and they make peace with them and then god tells them they have to live up to that peace and it goes bad at first but god rewards them for living up to the peace in chapter 10 9 and 10 and gibeonites become part of israel that's what's going on here they become part of Israel. Again, because the gospel has always been about if you will have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And in the Old Testament, there are faith in the coming Messiah through Yahweh, through the Lord, all caps. And they had faith in Him, and they trusted Him, and God saved them. happens over and over in the Old Testament. And you see that there's all kinds of people here. Mizbah. Mizpah is another one where Israel holds a ceremony of repentance. This is an ancient place where Israel held a ceremony of repentance in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So we can draw from this, this deep, powerful truth. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter where you come from or your background or how great you've been, or how wonderful you've been, or how awful you have been. It doesn't matter. Those things do not matter. God will use you in His kingdom when you have faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are part of the kingdom. Get to work. We build together. This is beautiful. From all over from every place. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. It doesn't matter if you were from a race of people who lied to get into the kingdom. Do you have faith now? Do you have faith now? That's the, that's the question. If you have faith now, get to work. Next, we have all types of people that come. Look at this. All the jobs. The priests are mentioned in verse 1, in verse 20, in verse 22, and verse 28. And they're primarily doing the sheep gate and then houses. 
in ancient Israel, you had these big, you had the big wall, and then inside the wall, you had houses built right up against the wall. And the priests were working primarily on houses and walls opposite of their house. So they were working primarily in homes. There's a lot to be said there about the fact that fathers are to be the priests of their home and are to work and labor to build up the wall around their house and to defend their family and to protect their family by the word of God. You have a commission to do this. You have a commission to do this. Fathers, you are the priests of your household. There's no getting around that. It's a delightful responsibility, but as we talked about earlier, it means that you're a servant to your family. It means you you lead by dying. What is it, Jesus? What is it, Paul says? Christ, love your family like Christ, love your wife like Christ loves the church. You're to die for your wife. That's a great encouraging one whenever you're frustrated, right? Come home, dishes aren't done. House is a mess. Kids are going rampant, going crazy. Your wife is on her last nerve. She just got home too. Everything's a mess. Everything's going crazy. She's sighing. You know, my wife doesn't get mad. She sighs. Ugh. Ugh. She's just exhausted. And I can do one of two things. I can either, I can either cheer her on and get to work and serve her. Or I can sigh and be frustrated and have a miserable evening. What's it Paul says? We're to die for our wives as, as Christ loves the church. We're to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Giving himself up for her. Washing her with the water of the word. That's what we are to do. Second, you see goldsmiths. Did you see the goldsmiths in there in verse 8, verse 31, verse 32? Verse 8, verse 31, and verse 32. You saw the goldsmiths. Those are guys who are good at jewelry making but more than that they're good at ornate wall making they carve things they they build things they they you do metal work that's the goldsmiths and they're working on the building and they're the ones that would probably be able to fashion the bolts you know sometimes you work with people who are really good at construction things and they're they're really talented and you you're like i don't have this particular bolt that i need i'm gonna have to go to mccoy's and they're like no don't worry about it i got the saw and stuff we'll fix it and make it right here i'll make the bolt right here and you go make the bolt and they say yeah don't worry about it i got it's always a guy with a cowboy hat who's like 102 years old i got it right here i'll make it and he pulls out this thing he screws it together and he and he's got the right perfect bolt sticks it in, turns it, and you go, I have no idea how you just did that. I'm going to have to watch that again and again and again, and then afterwards I'm going to have to call you and have you do it again because I, I will never learn that skill. But this is these are men who are laboring there. And then this is fascinating. Verse 8. Did you notice who's next to a goldsmith? A perfumer. A perfumer. A guy that makes essential oils. This is a guy that's in charge of spices and perfumes. He made the he probably made something like the alabaster jar in the New Testament. Gets broken and pours out. Right? This is a, a perfumer. Can you imagine a perfumer? That part of the wall must have smelled the best. He probably insisted everybody use certain types of lotions to keep their hands from cracking. And everybody's their their side of the wall, they're like, man, we don't have any chapped anything. They're great. And he's working right next to them. Next next to them, in verse 31 and 32, you see the merchant class work too. The merchant class, businessmen who made deals. They were working too. They were working to build the wall. And then there's no shortage of rulers. Did you see that? No shortage of governors and rulers who are working. Rulers in verse 9, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, and verse 19, to say the least. Governors and rulers who are there working along the wall. Only one set of rulers slash nobles did not want to work, and that's the ones who the Tekoites came without them. There's an application there for us that sometimes our rulers who may be outside the kingdom of God may not want us to do something. But it is not illegal for us to do it, one. And it is good for us to do it. So we do it anyway. Whatever the case may be in chapter 4. We do it anyway. We are faithful 
to the Lord to follow what he said. All these different people tell us that your gifts or your lack thereof do not preclude you from building up the city of God. Your gifts or your lack thereof do not preclude you from building up the city of God. If you have a gift, which you do, because as we read at the beginning, he apportions gifts to everyone. If you have a gift, find it, use it to build up the city of God. Use it to encourage one another. Use it to lift one another up. Figure out a way to use it. You need to work to use your gifts no matter what. So we have all types of people, including sons, daughters, and rulers. I love that the city of God defies all social norms. Society at this time would have said the women didn't need to be building. And yet, you'll notice very clearly in verse 12, Shalom, the ruler of half of the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. I love that because I've got some strong girls who are great daughters. And they work in the gospel. Even now, as a kid, they work in the gospel. Because they work alongside their family. Children, this is beautiful for you. You have a role. You have a job. You get to build the kingdom of God. You get to work alongside your parents, to evangelize to your neighbors, to love people well. Oh, I'll never forget the time when I was in the grocery store and my daughter, I was waiting for an obviously Muslim man to move out of the way of juice. And she was two, maybe, in the cart, two or three. She was able to talk and sing. And she looks at the guy. Hi! And I very sheepishly went. <laughs> He's got the big turban on, big beard. Obvious. no, no, no. Kneels down. His wife's with him, but she won't talk to you. That's how you know they're when they're Muslim. She's not going to talk to you because the wife, it's inappropriate for the wife to address a stranger, a man in particular, especially in the presence of her husband. So the husband looks, oh, cute kid. You know, and he's like bending down. I'm just waiting patiently, playing with my kid. And she turns around and goes, hi. And he looks up again and she goes, hi. And he goes, Hi. And she goes, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Sings the song. And then ends it. They are, how does she say? They are weak. They are, no, they are weak. They are good. Something like that. It was the wrong words. She'd sing it. She sang it to the guy. And I was like, hey, hey. My daughter is a better evangelist than I am at three. Do you understand? Sometimes, children, you have an ability to reach people for the gospel that your parents are not able to do. And it is beautiful. And you have a place in the kingdom building the wall next to them. This is beautiful. So we have, this is a cooperative work. You are all needed in the body of Christ. You are all needed in the local church. There is nobody that is not needed in the local church. There is nobody that is not needed in the body. Every single person in the body of Christ has purpose, merit, and value. Even if you don't like them. Even if you don't like them. Remember, they belong to Jesus. And they have a place in the body. And if they don't have a place in our local body, then we're doing something wrong. We're doing something wrong. People you do not like should still be able to stand next to you and build the wall. I guarantee you that there was some construction worker next to the perfumer who was going, this guy is annoying with the lotions all the time. Or there was some man working next to Shalom and his daughters going, your daughters can't swing the hammer hard enough. I guarantee you that those things were happening. But those aren't the point. The point is that everybody has a place in the work of God. So second, it was a communal work, a cooperative work, and it was a complete work. And the complete work, note, 
Walls, gates, stairs, entryways into the city must be made clear. Remember when he walks around the gate, he can't get in because his, his horse can't fit underneath some of the gates that have been broken down so badly. He can't get in. So part of the issue is that there was no access to the kingdom of God for the people of God to go to the worship of God. The gates and the walls and the stairs and the entryways into the city must be made clear. The walls show you where you cannot climb in. The walls are there for a purpose. They show you where you cannot climb in or jump in. In John chapter 10, Jesus illustrates that there are those who try to climb in a different way, but he is the door. John chapter 10, verse 7 through 10. They also serve to identify the shepherd versus the robber. The shepherd versus the robber. The shepherd who is the gatekeeper, who is the gate itself, who is the open door, who comes in by the gate. That one, the one who comes in the right way, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Gates show you the way in. Stairs give you foundations to walk into the fountain and the garden of God. The stairs of David led into the fountain and the garden of God. And if you'll notice, they rebuild that area. And you can walk in to the king's garden, the fountain where there is life and salvation. And then finally, houses give you a place. Houses give you a place and they are rebuilt with the wall. Houses give you a place to live, to worship, to be, to belong. Oh, there's so many applications here. Just hear a couple of them rattled off. You belong in the kingdom of God. There's a place for you. This first one. There's a place for you in Jesus Christ. Two, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of work to be done and it requires all of us. There's a lot of broken people. It requires all of us to rebuild what sin has destroyed. It takes all of us. Three, leaders serve Leaders serve. Four, there is access to the city of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord, through the stairs He made, through the stairs He made, to the garden He designed, to the fountain that brings eternal life. Jesus claims all of these things for Himself. He claims that He is all of these things. And it begins and ends at the sheep gate. It begins and ends at the Sheep Gate where the atonement comes through the doors into the temple and there is salvation in Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has become the Lamb slain from the foundations of the earth for your salvation for all who trust in Him and believe in Him. The completed walls give us a place where we could bring sacrifice and love Jesus all the more. So we see this wall is completed here at the Sheep Gate. Everything is done. The merchants repaired. Everybody's involved. There's a communal cooperative work. It's a completed work. And then we want to ask the question in closing, how do we build? This is why I printed off those big sheets for you. How do we build? So first, the easiest thing for me to tell you is to do the one another's in Scripture. I just went through. You can find lists like this all over online. Every, you can Google one another's Bible verses. And you'll find list after list after list. I just went through and looked up one another's. There's four pages of one another's. I didn't even include them all. In the New Testament alone. That's what this is. Take these. Ask yourself, am I doing these? This is how we build the kingdom. This is how we build the kingdom. We love one another. We show hospitality to one another. We encourage one another. We gather with one another. We do things with one another. We serve one another. We die for one another. We do not, we do not wrongly judge one another. I want to put wrongly in there because there are times when you are also told to judge and correct and admonish and reprove. We admonish one another. We lift one another up. We serve one another. We eat by one another. We eat with one another. That's a big thing, isn't it? We do these things, one another's, all together. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to read Ephesians 4. Read Ephesians 4. You read, Ephes you read 1 Corinthians 12, the first half. We're going to read the second half at the end of the service. So that's one where we talk about being one body in Christ. We also need to read Ephesians 4 where it talks about being unified and united together in Christ. This is how you build the body of Christ. You are unified in the labor, in the work, in the, in the, 
in the striving together for unity's sake. This is how we build each other up. So, homework for you, Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Study and read your Bible, pray. These are great things. Great disciplines that you need to do. Fast. These are disciplines that you need to do. There's something to add, which is striving to build the body of Christ. Take this list of one another's. Take Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. Read them and let them saturate you and strive to do them. My friends and I, I have a few friends that I play this game with. We give ourselves points when we outdo one another in showing honor. And it's fun. It's just fun. There's no, we're not actually keeping score, just to be fair. But it's fun to try and outdo your brothers and sisters in Christ by showing honor. And I mean in simple ways. Picking up their trash before they can. Not saying something to them when they've, when they've gotten something, just fixing it for them. Helping someone with something without being asked. Just simple things to outdo one another in showing honor. I would encourage you as a body to do this homework. Pray and ask the Lord for ways that you can wash other people's feet, that you can serve them, that you can do the one another's for them and strive to do so. And strive to do so. Why? Because if you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He has changed your heart and doing these things is your joy. And doing these things is your joy. And if He has redeemed and rescued you, you will find great joy in living in the body of Christ, building the kingdom. I wish that we had another hour because I would love to go through Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 and do that. Maybe I'll write something about it. But for now, let's end with this commission that you strive to do this together. Lord, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts ways that we can serve and love one another. We pray that you would delight in your people at Sovereign Grace as we strive to love one another, as we strive to live in love together, as we strive to delight you with all that we are. Lord, we love you and we trust you in everything. Be glorified now as we come to a time of communion together. Lord, we pray that you would be delighted as we remember your body broken for us and blood poured out for us.